everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. My name's Nick Jamel, and I am the host of the podcast here at The Conversation of Our Generation, the creator of the blog, uh, conversationofourgeneration.com, and the main author there and the editor for anyone who does decide to do a guest blog, which I'd like to start the show off by just saying if you are interested in the ideas that I talk about here, if you have a disagreement with me, whatever, I want this to be a conversation. I want this to be a dialogue about ideas at a deeper level than simply 140, you know, 280 characters, an angry Facebook comment. I want it to be people pulling their ideas and, and fleshing them out in, a, you know, like a 500-word essay or article of some sort or more even, and just posting their thoughts in full detail, you know, and walking through their ideas so that you can look at their ideas on merit, not just, you know, partisan talking points instead. And I think that's important in this day and age, and that's why I started the conversation of our generation and what I'm doing. So uh, I thank you guys for listening and supporting what I'm doing. Today is going to be a good episode. It's going to be talking about how the battle that you wage within yourself to be the person that you want to be versus the person that your impulses and your instincts try to tell you to be, how that works its way up to a battle in the external world. And why that is, I think. And this is something that I'm really fleshing out the idea here. Um, this The podcast, I like to talk through ideas. And so this podcast is a great way for me to not really come here and preach to you guys as much as explore an idea that I'm trying to figure out. And I think it's helped me several times to articulate what it is that I'm trying to or what I'm what I think about something whereas if you picture when you're thinking about an idea and you keep it all inside your head I feel like the thoughts you get some good ones that kind of are fleeting or they go away before you can fully form that into an idea <clears throat> and I think it's important to talk about them and work through them in a way where you make it real. And I find that for me, when I try to write down an idea that I'm trying to figure out before I articulate it, a lot of times my mind's moving too fast for me to get the idea out. And so I think that this is my way of fleshing that idea out so that I can start writing better again. My hope is that I can really formulate a set of ideas for myself and get back into the blogging much more regularly, get back into the, uh, get back into really trying to hammer out a couple books is what I really want to do. And that's why talking through this stuff is really helping me formulate these ideas. And the quote of the day today is one by Sun Tzu, uh, the reason being is I'm actually, I think part of the reason why this came up is I started reading um, The Art of War and this uh, quote actually really stood out to me and I think that it obviously stood out on the macro level, the political level, but I think that it was something that in listening to Jordan Peterson's lectures and listening to, you know, some of the other things that are going on, it felt like it worked in several different ways. And the quote is, there is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged war. Now, obviously, I don't have to tell you about, um, if you're at all into history, about Vietnam, about, you know, the war in Afghanistan, you know, the war in Iraq, um, basically every war in the last 50 years that America's fought has been just dragged on when it shouldn't be. And I think that is two parts on that. Number one, I think that because of the way we ended World War II, I think we're afraid of doing something along those lines, like being in the war really truly having to, you know, do what you do in war to win decisively and quickly so that you can get the war over with. You know, if you're, uh, I don't want to ever have to go to war if you, ne if, but if someone's invading Canada and coming for the U.S., then, you know, you have to 
make a decisive maneuver there. And, you know, I think that it's important to, when you're waging war, to make it quick, make it decisive, and get it done instead of dragging out. Because all you do when you drag it out is give more chance for it to do the horrible things that war does. And I think it also uh, makes it just exhaustive to where, you know, it consumes people's reality and makes war the reality. I mean, kids who are, you know, I don't remember really America not being in a war. And I'm 23 years old. Think about that. I mean, we weren't at war when I was born or anything and necessarily, really. But, you know, since 2001, when I was six years old, basically, we've been at war. That That's a long time. And, you know, 17 years, really, that we've been over in the Middle East doing this. It almost numbs you to the reality of what war is, I think, um, from an external perspective. From an internal perspective, I think it's exhausting. And, I, and I'm going to get into the ideas of why I think it's important to wage war within yourself decisively as well. But I think it's exhausting to um, continuously try to wage war internally or in philosophies because it just drags on. And there's oftentimes so many, only so many things you can talk about, only so many ways you can look at something before it just becomes this abstract thing that you can't really touch. And so when you try to fix the problem or, you know, address this thing that you've looked at from 85 different angles, now it's just this abstraction of what it really is and you can't address that. So I think it's important to understand how to be decisive in this battle. And that's what I think we're going to try to talk about today. Well, not what we're going to try to, what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to try to get to some interesting conclusions, I hope. We Do Better is an organization that is trying to help charities connect the resources that they need in order to meet the human needs that they're trying to meet with their organization and with the mission that drives them and fuels them to be such a great solution in helping people in your neighborhood, in your community. And what I love about We Do Better is that it allows me to be active and ensure that I am going to be helping the people in my community, the people that I see, the homeless people on my streets right in front of me, and those people that I know need help because it keeps everything local. It keeps my contributions to charities in the area that I live and not going to some far off place or getting sucked away by, you know, government waste. Instead, I know that I'm giving to a charity that is going to be servicing people in my community and is doing so better than other solutions out there. So if you want to get involved, go to wedobetter.org and look around and see what great information there is there. There's plenty to look at. And then go to the contact part and tell them that you want to get involved. Or you can go to the Facebook page for We Do Better Indianapolis if you're in my area and let me know. Or search Facebook for your locality. Just We Do Better My City, My State, and see what's out there for you to get involved with. We'd love to have as much help as possible because we believe in this mission. We believe in what's going on with We Do Better because it's about we the people meeting the human needs in our communities and rallying around our community to make them better and to help people who really need it the best way possible and the most efficient way possible. And that's what it's about. So if you want to get involved, again, it's wedobetter.org. Go there and contact them and let them know that you want to get involved. So let's get into the meat of it now and let's talk about <clears throat> the war that we have within ourselves. And I think this is the most important one to really discuss because it's the one that no one ever relates to what's going on in the external world because we're, you know, they're like, oh, this is what the country's doing. This is what the, you know, 
the Republicans or the Democrats or this state is doing, but they don't think about the fact that all those groups are made up of individuals who have their own individual conscience, consciousness, and they have the ability to think for themselves, to do for themselves. And the reason why that's important is these philosophies, politics, you know, war, everything is, you know, done by a group of individuals who, for some reason or another, chose to do that. And sometimes it's to go along to get along. Sometimes it's out of, you know, compromising their principles to the point that, you know, you went from a kind, you know, a nice German family to, you know, disliking the Jews to hating the Jews to looking the other way when people did things to the Jews and then actively participating in what it was because each one of those compromises just ate away at your soul. And now that didn't happen to everybody in Germany, but most of them moved along one of those stages or a couple of those stages. I'm sure a lot, I mean, a lot of people I'm sure did. And there's people who simply had to look the other way to save their family properly. Yeah, I get it. But there's, when there's a lack of virtue, then you're finding a vice there. And I think when you see such a lack of virtue across the nation, like we do today in our country as well, different types, but it's, I mean, we're missing different virtues, but we still have a lot to work on as a nation, but it has to be done individually. And what this is, is what's happening, I think, at all times, and, you know, at least in my individual experience, <laughs> and hopefully I would think that it's something that's pretty universal, is that we have a friction constantly uh, between the person that we are and the one we have the potential to be. And the one that we are is, you know, your present self. The, the person that you have the potential to be is really not even the same person as you. The people who have higher empathy actually are better at delaying gratification because they recognize the fact that it'll be better for them later more so and they're able to empathize with their future self more so than people who um, don't have as much empathy, you know, so it extends not only to other people, but to yourself in the future and, and probably too to yourself in the past to understand why you did bad things when you were in that situation, because you recognize where you were, um, and then you can move on from it. And so there's also a battle going on for us every time between our impulses and our desire to strive to something higher. And I think this is not really, it's similar to that first part, but it's a little different in the sense that it's not who we are now versus later. It's, you know, our impulses to, you know, are we going to gratify our impulses now or are we going to delay that gratification to achieve something greater and that is more rewarding? It's not, you know, a quick dopamine hit or whatever. It's, a fulfilling lifestyle. It's, you know, foregoing having a loose sexual lifestyle in order to, you know, cure cancer. I mean, it, because that would have gotten in your way from getting your med school stuff done and doing your research and all that if you were going out to the bars drinking and taking girls home with you. You know, that's, that's the way that you have to look at it is what are you foregoing, you know, you know, this little impulse of drive in order to build something, you know, more meaningful, or even, you know, I mean, just foregoing, you know, uh, a loose sexual lifestyle to settle down and get married, that's going to be a more fulfilling lifestyle. And this battle is, this one, I think is the tougher one to conquer, because I think eventually, people recognize that you need to start saving for your future, you need to start acting like, you know, your future self is actually you, <laughs> like it's going to impact your life, literally, whatever you do. But 
I think the impulses sometimes are strong enough that it's hard for people to conquer them. And it's in these conflicts that we discover what we can become out of the potential we're presented with. And so it's by saying, here's where I am and what could I be? What kind of person do I want to be? You know, what kind of talent, well, that if I want to figure out who I'm going to be or what I could be, I have to look at my talents. I have to look at my skills, my weaknesses, my strengths. You know, do I get really angry easily? Well, maybe being a kindergarten or at little things that pester me, maybe a kindergarten teacher isn't my thing. Or maybe I should fix that and I can do something else uh, still, but I, maybe I should address that anger problem. Maybe. Uh, and so taking an inventory of yourself and understanding who you are allows you to say, okay, now let's scan the world and see what the world's like. And you look around and you say, okay, I found a little niche that seems to fit for me. Let's try that. And it doesn't have to be a permanent one, especially in today's world, man. I mean, finding something that works for you now isn't like, you know, it was 80 years ago when you found a factory job that was in a good neighborhood and it was easy, you know, and you just spent your whole life working that job. That's not the world that we live in today. So you can move that around and adjust that really more and deepen your understanding of yourself each time. And I think that's an awesome thing to do. But we definitely have to be focused on resolving that conflict within ourselves. And I think the main part of the conflict is, are you honest with yourself when you, you know, in your inner dialogue that back and forth between you and your conscience between, you know, in your thoughts, are you honest? Are you truthful? Or do you justify the bad things you do? Do you justify, uh, you know, being lazy or being angry at that person or hating that person? Or do you say, uh, maybe it's me, maybe it's something I'm doing. And then the other part, I think, for the conflict is, are, are you creating a set of ideas that you can live by, a set of principles and understanding, something to really aim for? Are you simply believing the philosophy of your time or, or listening to what your teachers taught you and not questioning it, just accepting it as gospel? Or uh, are you questioning the world around you and asking yourself, well, I know this; these things are true. How does that fit with this idea? Oh, I can't reconcile those two. Maybe that idea is wrong. Well, let's test it another time. And then you come back around and there's something else that where it kind of, this idea conflicts with what you know. And so maybe you say, okay, maybe I need to look for a new idea because these ideas aren't working. And that's something that I think we need more than almost anything is an honest questioning of what's going on around us. And I think it's incredibly important. I think it's incredibly necessary because that's how we're going to change what's going on is we look around at our politics and our philosophies that are you know, going around in our country today and we say, that doesn't really gel with what I know to be true. And when you do that, then you say, okay, well, what does? And then you find the ideas that work because if you know something to be true and you can't lay a philosophy over that that works, then the philosophy is probably fine. Now, now double check to make sure what you know is true. But, you know, that's the first thing that I would check. But if you can and you say, that's no, that's right. And then you lay a philosophy over it and that philosophy doesn't fit. Maybe you need to find a new one that you can kind of work with. And I think that's an important thing for us to do. And the other important thing for us to do is make have that battle between virtue and vice within ourselves. and to increase the number of virtuous individuals in our country today because I think that that is one of the hardest problems that we have is simply just a lack of a virtue on behalf of a lot of people. And I'm not saying that I'm Mr. Perfect over here. I, I have flaws that I struggle with, but I think 
that I recognize that and I embrace that and I try to fix it as best I can instead of <clears throat> simply going out into the streets and yelling and blaming someone else for my problems and instead of taking a personal inventory to say maybe this problem's due to me maybe uh, maybe what's going wrong in my life is my fault and I think that is a much better way for us to live as individuals in this country. And so now I kind of like to transition into politics because this is the science of manipulating people and individuals. <laughs> and so I think it fits. And I think it's also, I wanted to do this because <clears throat> people are always saying that politics is downstream of culture, which I think is true. But I also think that a lot of people seem to think that politics is informed by a philosophy. And I I get a sense that it's not totally true. That's not totally true. I think that there are a lot of people, mind you, that create a coherent philosophy and look for political candidates who follow that philosophy. Um, on both sides, you know, right, left, libertarian, you know, whatever. But they logically come to a conclusion on what their political philosophy will be, and then they go look at politics. There are people who do that. Most people, I think, look for the candidate who demagogues on the issues that they're passionate about because they affect their lives personally, and they don't look at what the policy effects actually are. And from that, you draw a philosophy out of what the policy uh, is, and you kind of find some sort of coherence between the philosophy or but between the uh, policies that create a philosophy of that party for the time. And and I think it's something you can see really clearly right now is it, it's definitely happening. That I, I think it's more obvious what's happening in the Democrat Party because I don't think the Republican parties change their positions that much. I think they've changed on a few things. Um, but I wish they'd actually change on a few more if they're talking about liberty and legislating morality. But I think that, you know, the Democrats have obviously since Obama's election, instead of, I mean, when he was elected, they had a coherent platform that was, you know, liberal, but not really crazy. Um, I mean, I disagree with a lot of it, but it wasn't a radical platform by any means. Um, and in eight years, you know, Obama went from, you know, not supporting gay marriage to forcing, uh, companies to allow people who believe they're the opposite gender to choose which bathroom they go to. And... I think that that's a radical difference, and I don't think that's something that he did because of his philosophy. I think he did it because he's a politician, which means that when it comes to your politics, generally you're an immoral person who will bend to the will of whoever's going to get you elected, whoever's going to, you know, donate to you to come speak uh, when you're done with your candidacy, right? You know, and if you're, once you're a retired president, you have a few friends who will come, pay you to come, you know, sign books at their place or this or that, right? You know, you get a, you know, you know what I'm saying. Um, and so that to me is what influences decision, but it built a philosophy on top of that, of what this modern intersectional left is. I think that was built. Out of, by pulling from some philosophies, don't get me wrong, I think there's, you know, an obvious element of Marxism and, um, and this postmodernist idea, but I think that really the implementation of that was something that was, or the forming of it into making it from this abstract philosophy into a reality is done by the politics reacting to the impulses and the drives of some people and then from that they create this 
real thing, this real uh, not I don't want to say idea, but this real this idea that's become manifested as a reality in some way in actionable items by individuals and by groups. And I think when that happened, it really radically changed what the party was over those eight years for the Democrats. And they went from really denying socialism. And maybe it was just, maybe these were, you know, the philosophies that under, I think in part, these are some philosophies that were lying under the surface there, but you know, I think that politicians do as expedient. They don't do what's a principled thing. And so I believe that most of the politicians, most of the Democrats probably don't believe this stuff. I don't think like, like Joe Donnelly from our center from Indiana, I, I really don't think he believes in this crap that's going around. I think he's probably like, a, in all honesty, pretty close to what the Republican Party is today. I think he's really more of an old school Democrat who, you know, ran on the Democrat ticket and got pushed further and further left. I really think he is. And that's why I think he's an unprincipled piece of poop. But, um, and so, cause I've just seen him over the years, he's gone from pretty moderate to like now being pretty radical. And it's, it's just annoying to watch. And I think that they just react to the baser instincts and the impulses of the the mob because the mob is a bunch of individuals who are denying their potential to achieve greater things and they look at politics as their way to affect the change that will allow them to wallow in their impulses is what's going on today and and I think that's really whenever governments go sour that's often what it is is whether it's Nazi Germany and the people of Germany blaming the Jews for their inability to run, you know, a business or do whatever. And, you know, it's all just the Jews getting away with stealing their stuff or whatever it is. And that led to, you know, obviously horrible things. Or people in Russia just being upset about the fact that, you know, rightfully so, that they still were the last country to live under like a feudalist sort of society or one of the last at least and they see all this liberalism going on in the west and they want to make something like that occur where they are and i think that you know those impulses drove them in the wrong direction instead of you know maybe fixing what's going on they just tore it down and became a communist country and obviously paid the price for that for a hundred years and then I think you just see this a lot and then you have people who you know today they just want to be able to have a libertine you know 1960s hippie love fest all the time man and you know man it's it's all good as long as you know you're you're nice and it's and you're not hurting anybody and it's consensual man right that's what we're fighting for in America <laughs> apparently, is to be able to just live an irresponsible libertine lifestyle and not pay the price and just make, you know, the couple billionaire, the rotating 400 billionaires uh, at any given time pay for it. And that to me is something that can't be fixed by uh, politicians, it has to be fixed by individuals because politicians, if they have to react to an educated and virtuous uh, people, then guess what? <laughs> you're going to see them not try to, because they won't be able to play you. If you're educated, you know the system, you know what they're up to, and you're suspicious of them, then they can't play you because you know their tricks, you know their games, you know what they're up to. And I think that's an important thing for us to realize as a country. So now let's get into the philosophy portion. And I think this is not going to take too long because I talk a lot about philosophy. I've talked a lot about building a cosmogony and how you structure the world around you in a way that you can understand it. <clears throat> and I think, though, that 
the philosophy conflict comes from two places. Or, sorry, not the conflict, but philosophy itself comes from good. you get a good or a bad philosophy. And the way you get a good philosophy is the result of an honest search for truth and an openness to find whatever it is that lies there. You shed your preconceived notions. You shed, you know, you detach yourself from what it is you're trying to think about so that you can think about it clearly. And as you do so, you question all of your thoughts and make sure that they are not really you speaking as much as, you know, this, what, um, like Socrates would call his demon, you know, this conscience or this other voice that is within you that kind of tells you what you should be doing, right? That tells you the truth, that tells you when you're wrong. And you kind of listen to that as you think through things. <clears throat> and you find that it, uh, it helps you to formulate these ideas and make sure that they're an honest attempt to get to the truth. And the second thing is, I think there's a couple bad ways you can get to a bad philosophy. Um, and one is to justify one's failure to conquer their demons, to conquer their impulses. And that's kind of like a libertine sort of philosophy, one of hedonism and one of which you can find philosophies around that idea. Um, generally, like, I think the atheist idea of the world is used for this. Um, not to say that all atheists are, you know, hedonists. I think that there's plenty that seem like good people who, um, I think have broken philosophies in some ways, but, um, regardless, I think that, you know, like Sam Harris seems like a good person to me, but in a lot of cases, I think that the philosophy is used to justify, um, bad behavior. I mean, if you look at, obviously, I don't want to keep just using Hitler, but Hitler, um, Che Guevara, uh, Stalin, all these people were obvious examples of people using a bad philosophy in order to justify something evil. Um, and then there's people who do it to just justify something that's just bad or like something you shouldn't do. I mean, you do it all the time. People do it all the time in their own personal lives. It's like, you know, they create some way of justifying why they're doing this destructive behavior in their own life. And I think that that's just not the way you want to do it. Um, and then the other is to manipulate others. And I think this is one that is much more out of greed, I think, generally than out of malice or malevolence. It's often like what you see in American politics where they can stand on the stage and demagogue in order to get their presidential, you know, shot, either shots for their next presidential race or, or to show how virtuous they are so they can write a book about it like Comey did or whatever it is, but they're all just out for themselves and just to manipulate the thoughts of other people um, in that regard. Or a failure to, to decipher between their prejudices and the truth. And I think this one is one of the most dangerous ones. And I think this is where you get like a Marxist idea or like where you get Marxism from is I think he was unable to see past his uh, conclusions. I think he had a hypothesis that he wanted to prove true and all of his efforts to do so just built this whole belief around this hypothesis and instead of testing it and seeing that it didn't work and you know as an economist should have done like he was he he just said basically why <clears throat> why this would be ideal if it could work and all of this stuff built around it and this you know and it was simply him trying to prove himself right by creating a line of logic but it's all on false uh, assumptions and you know it's a house built on sand so to speak <clears throat> and I think that that's an important distinction to make 
uh, for Marx. But I think this battle of philosophies comes when two people, when people or groups cannot talk to each other and understand the other person's line of logic. And so I think this is something that's important to get across here because when you're working through a philosophy, you have to start with saying, okay, here's my underlying assumptions and my justification for them. Now, here's the line of logic that I pull from that assum those assumptions. Here's my supporting evidence for those assumptions or for those, um, for this line of logic. And then the other person can say, okay, well, I have a stat that disagrees with your stat or um, I think your assumptions faulty because here's, here's how I think about it. Or, and you can attack these ideas without uh, calling the person evil, without calling the person, you know, a Nazi or whatever it is. I mean, unless they're like, you know, their pretenses are, you know, the Jews are evil and we should exterminate the Jews and here's why, you know, then that's a line of logic that I think is very, very safe calling that person a Nazi. Okay. Um, but I think that just being incapable of following a line of logic from justifying an assumption all the way through where the line of logic kind of leaves, you know, ends is, you know, the inability to do that makes it so you can't have a philosophical discussion because that's really how it's done is you, those are your points that you can question and you can talk about, <clears throat> but if you can't follow that, if you can't build that in your own life, then you're not going to be able to criticize other people's, uh, not well, at least, and it's going to be a losing game for you. And so I think it's important to understand how to formulate these philosophies and start to do so in your own life, because I think it's also important to not just take an idea that's out there and make it yours or, or, or like, you know, scan it into your body and like, that's my philosophy now, like you're a robot, you know, instead, I think it's important to read it, think about it and make it your own by making it gel with the world that you see, making sure that it makes sense and making sure that if you're going to live by that philosophy, that you can defend it, number one. Number two, that it's useful, that it works for you. And then number three, I think it's also important to understand which realm philosophies work in. I think that libertarian, you know, philosophy works as a political idea. But if you're like talking about um, in a personal world, I think that the conservative ideas work better. I think that they're much more fulfilling to live as conservatives try to legislate us to live, <laughs> but we should have the freedom to be, a, you know, a libertarian, you know, we should have the libertarian sort of government that doesn't make us do anything that, you know, we don't want to do as long as we're not harming anybody. But I think that we should go beyond that very minimum uh, amount of responsibility in your personal life. And so I think that understanding the realm in which a philosophy operates is important as well. Finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about this war uh, idea and how these things kind of play out as a battle. Because I talked a little bit about it in the beginning, but I didn't really talk about when these ideas come to a front as a philosophy or as politics because I kind of wanted to save it for the end when I could bring out this analogy here. But... The way I see this is, you know, the way war works in the traditional sense is you have factions or nations that have such a disagreement with each other that they've been wronging each other probably for a while. They haven't, you know, war doesn't just break out because we have a disagreement. War breaks out because we had a disagreement and then you did this because of that and I did this back to you and we, you know... We're escalating the situation, and then eventually, you know, there's something that happens that triggers, you know, the need or the supposed need for war. And that, or sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it could just be as simple as I want this person's land and I invade them too. But I think that most of the wars that we see um, 
<clears throat> are some sort of a escalation of disagreements. Um, and those disagreements come from a philosophy and from politics between two nations and eventually erupt into a war. And that happens due to generally some event that really goes way too far that you have to answer for it. And you see this, I think, uh, really well in like the American Revolution, for instance, is kind of what I'm looking at in that you had, you know, the Americans having tension from the British and not liking some of the stuff the British were doing and, you know, they were kind of pushing back and the British would, you know, kind of stomp them out and they'd push back again and the British would ignore them or do something, you know, whatever it is. And so the revolution eventually broke out. And <clears throat> and it took a while for that to happen, really. So it's not like a war just happens. I think there's a long, you know, there's a long time where America was separating from the British as a nation, really. And as it formed itself into something, it realized that it, you know, was getting the raw end of this deal. And I think that those tensions as they rose and escalated, it obviously, it became obvious that that was going to be what had to happen. Now, I think more importantly, though, these battles are waged all the time, and they're always escalating into something more and more in the realm of, like, ideas, philosophy, and politics. And what happens, I think, when war drags on is that it drains you of your energy and it gives you one sole purpose, and that is to end the war. But if it keeps dragging on and on, then you kind of have two things happen. One is that you start to lose faith in you know, the cause. And the other one is that <laughs> people deny that and become fanatics about it and you know and push on regardless and they get you know they just get their enthusiasm and their sense of purpose from this war because that's all they've known <clears throat> and i think that that's what we're seeing in our politics today where you have a good portion of the electorate who's just like i'm done with this battle of stupidity then you have the other two portions of, like, the uh, Republicans and Democrats, the hardline party people, saying, um, you know, that they're just going to go harder and harder to their side. And then you have people who are just trying to reform these existing parties and make them something that's recognizable again and try to bring them back into reality for lack of a better phrase because they're just they have their head in the sky man and it's weird i think that that reforming idea is actually something that is good to see i think it was something that was overdue because i think that I think that a two-party system is dangerous in this sense because you don't have a mediator then. And I think having a third party to kind of mediate when the two parties are being insane and kind of swing one way or the other um, and bring the other party back from uh, extremism is important. And so to me this war is happening really in our political realm right now. I mean, it's obvious like what they're, what's happening to Brett Kavanaugh is just atrocious. Um, you know, what's, and so they're fighting dirty. They're playing hardball on both, you know, Republicans and Democrats are both doing it, but you know, it's not like Trump is some dainty little flower in the world of politics. He's, you know, He's been going after people and been attacking people. I get it, you know. And so I think both sides are guilty of escalating this 
but it seems to me that the energy that we're getting out of politics is just to be enraged at the other side instead of to be enthusiastic about what our principles are and that's what I try to bring is I don't I'll criticize other people you know pretty um, pretty much on the ideas and I think it's generally a criticism in the sense that I'm not like calling you know Marco Rubio little Marco I'm calling you know his ideas inconsistent in this way and I describe why I think that and you know I leave it at that and I think that's how we have to really handle this going forward is there need to be people out there doing that there need to be people out there who aren't attacking people they're criticizing the idea and they're trying to work on getting to the truth and when we have a nation that's doing that I think we'll reconcile this war and I think we have to do it like I said, at the personal level, to discover who we are, where we want to be, what our higher uh, aspirations are in life, and aim for those. And then from there, we can take it to the world of politics, to forming a philosophy that, you know, maybe a couple of philosophies in our nation that we can kind of try to reconcile and try to work out and try to make something that's cohesive in a way that we can live together. I think as long as both philosophies have a part in them where it's saying, I'm going to accept people who believe differently from me and say that they're not, you know, just out to get me, that they just have a different set of priorities and principles that, you know, so long as they raise their kids in, you know, a good manner and they treat people with respect and all this, well, then it's not a toxic philosophy generally. And, you know, it's livable at that point. And you can have the discussions and maybe bring people across the aisle or get them to understand why you believe really what you believe. And you can have some of those great moments. But in the world we're living in today, I don't think that that's a possibility. I think that we can start making it one by reflecting on ourselves, by having these conversations and engaging in these conversations. And that's why I started this is because I want this to be <clears throat> a battlefield for ideas, really. I do. I want this to be a shootout of ideas, but I want them to be fully formed and I want the criticisms to be fully formed. And I want, you know, um, I almost didn't even put comments on the blog when I did it at first because my hope was that instead of writing a comment, you like, you respond to an article and you say that got you. And so you create an article thread of debate. I think that'd be great. I'd love to see that happening here. I'd love to see someone tell me that they read one of my articles and they want to write a, you know, a reply to it and, you know, go after it. Sure. And then I'd love to try to defend my ideas back. You know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I can admit it when I am. Um, not to my family, you know, because I'm hard-headed sometimes, but <laughs> that's that's one of the things that I probably should work on, but um, looking internally, but it's definitely something for me that we need to, as a country, sorry, as a nation, let's say, you know, a group of people at an individual level start to look at these ideas and look at really this is a war zone of ideas and start to pick up the pieces and, you know, get the wounded out of here. The people who, the Brett Kavanaugh's who are just getting slaughtered for, you know, unsubstantiated, incredible allegations, right? And people who are just getting attacked and ruined because of these things, because of this battle of philosophies happening. And, we need to get back to something that looks like a peaceful, tolerant America that allows the states to run themselves so that we can test how much freedom we can give people at any given point in time. And we can group together and move from state to state if we don't like what our state's doing. And we can be tolerant and make the decisions for ourselves of where we want to be in this world or in this country. And I think that's important. I think we need to get back to that. So if you guys enjoyed this episode, I thank you for listening. I'm glad you came today, and I hope it was a good episode for you. I surely enjoyed it. 
And I'll be back next week with another episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. Thank you guys again for listening. And let's get the dialogue going. We'll see you next week.